0: All right, John chapter 15, if you guys want to turn there, we're going to finish the uh, I Am statements of Jesus uh, tonight and walk through that. We've been doing that for seven seven weeks now, and so we're going to finish that tonight. I do want to go back and just finish up chapter 14 real quick, um, so I'm just going to read to you from the end of chapter 14. Uh, just remember the context, we've talked about it over and over again, right, the context of... John 13 all the way through John 18, uh, 19 is this is the last, this is the last night, right? Before Jesus is arrested and ultimately crucified, this is it. And so we get a huge amount of information and we get a huge amount of conversation. Between Jesus and his disciples, these were people that had followed him for three plus years, walked with him, talked with him, slept with him, ate with him, and he's leaving. And they're freaking out, right? They're worried, they're concerned, they're scared. Um, you know, if you've got a relationship with somebody that was day-to-day for three and a half years, you get that emotion, you get that feeling. And so there's a lot of intensity in these conversations that speak to lots of us who are in situations with the Lord that are fraught with anxiety or fear or concern. And so you get a lot of comforting promises in this, in this process. And so we've talked about a couple of them, but in John 14, Jesus told them, I'm leaving and you can't, you can't come with me, right? But where I'm going, you'll be able to come because I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you right. And there was a lot of doubt on these people. I mean, listen. There had been a lot of chaos that had happened in three years. And these men who were raised in the Jewish society had seen Jesus be threatened to be killed multiple times by these people, right? And now he's leaving. The only thought they have is either we're going to die with him or this is going to happen to us, right? And so Jesus speaks into that. In the end of chapter 14, Jesus is telling them he's going to go away, right? And I just want to read to you what he says starting in verse 15. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. He says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another, another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. He says, the world can't accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be with you. Jesus tells them, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan, but I'm going to come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you, he says, will see me. Because I live, you will live also. And then he goes on to to reiterate that in the end of 15, or in chapter 15 and in chapter 16. And ultimately, right, what you find is that even in the middle of all of this fear, Jesus says, listen... I'm leaving, but I'm not leaving you. I'm not leaving you alone. I'm going to give you an advocate, right? We've talked about that word before. The advocate was a legal term. It described a defense attorney, someone that stood beside you, someone that defended you, right? Somebody was there to support you, somebody who was there to hold you up, to speak on your behalf. I mean... Lots of you either watching online or in here know the pain of being betrayed, know the pain of being rejected, know the pain of being left alone and not cared for. Jesus assures them that that won't be the case, right? It won't be the case for any of us who know Jesus because we'll have the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit with us. And throughout scripture, we realize or we learn what the person of the Holy Spirit does. He comforts, right? He strengthens. He's our paraclete, meaning he's the one who comes near and supports. And listen, if you've walked, if you've walked a walk of faith for very long, you know the pitfalls of success and failure. You know what it's like to have good days and have days where they're not so good. And you also, some of you also know what it's like to have those bad days exposed to other people on the same journey. And they're not always kind. They're not always forgiving. They're not always encouraging. They're not always supporting, right? If you're wounded in lots of churches, we just put you out of your misery and move on, right? Because we don't really have space for that. When in reality, the Holy Spirit is always on your side. Always in there for you, right? Always defending you, always coming alongside of you. This idea that God is somehow our adversary when we become his children, I have no idea where it came from, but it's so not biblical. Right? God's love for his children, right? Knows no bounds. And all, and, and all of this becomes important because of what Jesus teaches in John 15. Right. Yes, we know God is a vengeful God. We know God has wrath. We know that God will pour out His wrath on those who don't know Him. We know God who consumes with a raging fire. We know a God who drowns the entire earth in water for 40 days and 40 nights. Yes, we know that God is that. But God is also our Father. And the Bible says that through the Spirit of God, in Romans chapter 8, we are able to say, Abba, Father daddy, father, right? A term of endearment, a term that says to me and hopefully says to you that my relationship with God is not adversarial. Listen, if you've got children, you know this. Disobedient children can be complicated to deal with. Amen. But it doesn't, listen, if you love your child in spite of that struggle There's never an adversarial relationship while you're trying to raise them and love them and help them. And we're imperfect people, right? My guess is that all of you that have had children or have been a child, right, knows and hopes in this idea that this parent who God has given me has in his or her mind to protect me. Now, I know that's not everybody's story, unfortunately. That's not everybody's story. So those people, right, who go through such trauma and tragedy, right, can be forgiven when it comes to trusting in that kind of goodness because they've never experienced it. But there's a large majority of people who come to faith in Christ who have experienced. They have experienced a parent who can be frustrated and can be disappointed in them, but does everything out of love for that child, right? You know that. Somehow, we have made God adversarial to those he loves and those he chooses. He's your dad. He's your heavenly father. His desire is for you. So when these people panic, he says, don't panic. I'm not leaving you, what? An orphan. I'm not going to leave without care and protection to take care of yourself. I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of the spirit. What spirit? The spirit allows me and you to have a relationship with our father that is no longer adversarial. Right. And listen, when we get to John 15, if that part doesn't ring true in your head, you're going to read John 15 one way, the way probably all of us read it and have been taught it. And I just want to try to help you see it from a different perspective tonight. All right. So John chapter 15, I think we've got eight verses. I'm going to ask you to stand if you can out of respect for God's word. We're just going to read these eight verses and just sort of walk through them. Right. Right. So John chapter 15, verse 1, I'm the true vine, scripture says, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch. So everybody say cuts off, right? So that's a huge phrase, right? It's the phrase that for all of us who read English sets the tone for what we believe happens. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that branch so that it'll even be more fruitful. You're already clean, he says, because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I'm going to remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain or abide right in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone doesn't remain in me, he's like a branch. He isn't the branch, but he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. You can be seated. Jesus uses lots and lots of analogies when he teaches, right? There's pictures in Scripture of soldiers, right? Of farmers, of children, right? There's pictures of vines and branches. There's pictures of children and fathers, right? There's all kinds of metaphors used in Scripture. There's lost coins, right? There's lost sheep, right? There's all kinds of metaphors in Scripture. And sometimes it's hard to keep up with all those, right? But I don't want you to lose sight of the context, These things weren't written to us, right? But for us, Jesus is speaking to these men in the present and says to them, I'm leaving, right? Don't let your heart be troubled. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And where I go, I'm going to come back and get you, right? It's the perfect picture of a Hebrew wedding, right? And he says to them, when they say, right, Basically in fear and, 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 and panic, right? How, how are we going to get there? We don't even know where are going. And Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, right? Nobody gets home. Nobody gets to the Father's house except through me. He makes the destination about a person, right? And not about a roadmap. He makes it about himself. So the only way, listen, the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus, Some people will say that's exclusive. Some people will say that's inclusive. Because who can accept Jesus? Who can? Anyone, right? And so it allows for that, but it's got to go through Jesus. And then he says to them, listen, when I leave, you're not going to be alone. You don't have to be afraid. The Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit of truth, your advocate, right? From the Father is going to come and he's going to be with you forever. So that's the relationship that he's speaking into. We know from scripture, first Corinthians, right? 619, right? You and I who know Jesus, do you not know, right? That you're the temple of the living God and that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Can I get an amen? So that same spirit that didn't make these, these apostles, right? These disciples orphans is the same spirit that doesn't leave you to be an orphan, right? You have a family. You have a father. And according to scripture, you have a father that loves you because God is love. Amen, church? So he's for you, right? He's for you. But he's more for himself. And so there's an expectation on his children to help that come become clear to the world. Because God ultimately wants people to see him right as opposed to just seeing them. And so in John chapter 15 he uses this analogy, right? John 15:1 he says he says I am the vine, right? You are the branch and my father's the gardener, right? So I'm not a gardener, anybody in here a gardener? Okay. A couple of you, right? But my guess is that you know enough about gardening to know this, right? That the only way for a vine, right, a garden to work is that somebody has to be responsible for it. Because if you just plant it and leave it and never do any work in it, what happens to it? It dies, right? So you get this picture, right? Now, I want you to get a picture. So when you picture a vine, how many of you picture um, wine country out in northern California, right? What's what's it called? Sedona? No, Napa Valley. There you go. Thank you. Somebody knows their wine. I appreciate that, right? But when we picture vines, we picture Napa Valley, right? That's not really the picture here, right? The picture is right of vines, right? That have, that lay on the ground. Listen, if you see pictures of vines, right, in those days, you see vines all over the ground, right? And the what the what the gardener would do right is he would lift up these these vines on the ground right to see whether or not these vines were able or were actually producing any fruit because if there was no fruit he would go back and he would lift up that vine and he would check it out and if that vine needed some help that's what the gardener would do why because the gardener's sole desire is to get fruit from the vine and the branch you get that The goal of the gardener wasn't to kill it. The goal of the gardener was for the garden, the vine, to be productive. So Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're the what? Branch. So the goal of the gardener is to get the branch to produce what the vine gives it. Why? Because God, who's the gardener, isn't adversarial against his children. Right? So let's talk about this. So I, I broke it down just because my brain thinks this way, right? I used FP in every point. So here's the first one, right? Here's the first glimpse into this passage. Facilitate production, right? I'm the vine, you're the branch, right? Any branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, right? I take up, I cut off. We say cut off, right? I cut off and that branch is tossed away and gotten rid of. So here's what you hear. Here's what most people hear. Right, if you know Jesus, right, you're a vine, you're a branch that's connected to the vine. Is that true? Yes or no? Right. So here's what we hear: If you and I, as branches, aren't producing fruit, what's God going to do with us? He's going to he's going to cut us off. So then the question becomes: How much fruit do I have to produce? Right. What kind of fruit do I have to produce? And who on earth gets to determine whether or not I did enough? Does that sound like church to you? That sounds like a lot of churches, right? Because all of a sudden now, you have got to be responsible for producing fruit. Or you now have a fear based upon the phrase cut off. Your fear is is that if I don't do this, God's going to cut me off. Let me ask you a question to everybody online and everybody in here. Have you ever had days or weeks or months or maybe years where you just weren't so productive in your walk with Jesus? Yes or no? Right? Then why are any of you here? If you actually believe this verse means to cut you off because you don't produce fruit, then why are you here? Because Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branch. Any branch in me that does not bear fruit, I what? Cut it off. So why didn't Jesus, why didn't God, the vine dresser, cut you off when you had a terrible month, and a terrible week, and a terrible day, or a terrible year, or a terrible decade, right? Why didn't he do it? Because we've gotten it wrong. We've gotten it wrong. Listen to what he says in chapter 15, verse 1, right? Bring that verse back up. He says, I'm the vine, right? And my father is the gardener. So we get that picture, right? Next verse. He cuts off every branch. Now read these two words next. He cuts off every branch, what? In me, which is they are in who? They're in Jesus. That describes us. So when we read that, we see that if you're in Jesus, but bear no fruit, you're going to be what? Cut off. How long is God going to wait to decide this? I became a Christian when I was 17 years old, right? 17, 18, somewhere in there, right? So I've been a believer now for 42 years. I know at least seven years where I was fairly unproductive, right? I know that for a fact. I've had other days and weeks and months where, you know what? I probably did not do what the job description says I should do as a child of God. Anybody relate to that? So the question is, if you believe that in Jesus you can be cut off, then the question is this, when does that happen? Are you cut off in church? Are you cut off when you're at home where finally just God says, you know what, I've been waiting long enough for you, you're out. Or do you wait for the preacher or the elder or the parent or the spouse to come along and say, you know what, I don't think you're a Christian anymore. Well, why don't you think I'm a Christian? Because you're not bearing any fruit. So you're what? You're out. And all of a sudden, we have people who believe that that's exactly how God feels about you. And here's what you need to know. When God, as the gardener, goes to his vine, he wants one thing, and that is fruit. Everybody say fruit. If the gardener's desire is for fruit, and I'm a branch connected to the vine, don't you think God will do anything he possibly can to help that vine produce fruit? Or do you think that God's patience is so so thin with you, so thin with you as a child, As his child, even though we're using analogies of branch, you're a child of God. Do you think God is so impatient with you that he is going to just go, you know what? I gave him a week. I gave him a month. I gave him a year. You know what? I'm tired of waiting on them. They're out. The problem is I think a lot of us think that, that that's exactly how God does. We think that God works that way, right? We think that God somehow only invests in us if we're doing everything right. Okay, Again, how often do you have to produce fruit? And do you even know what fruit is? We say, well, the fruit of the Spirit. All right, let's just use it. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, self-control. Right? And the first gift is love, and Paul says love is patient love is kind love doesn't keep track of wrong love doesn't seek its own it's not selfish so how's your fruit production with that going right you see we set these things up and we say this is how god acts you've set god up to fail you automatically when god's desire is what for you Why? Because he's your father. He loves you. He gives you his spirit to identify you as his child. That spirit is the guarantee. It's a deposit that guarantees your redemption. Jesus said he will be with you forever. And here's what we say. Our relationship with God is so tenuous that if we don't produce fruit, right? Kind of fruit that's measurable by other people, then we're out. I do not believe for a second. That's what Jesus is telling these people. I believe that Jesus is telling them that you have a gardener that will quote, right? The, the, so here's where the here's where the Greek language comes into play, right? So go back to that verse, go back to that verse one uh in John fifteen, right? Uh, verse two, excuse me. He cuts off. So the Greek word there is iro, I arrow, right? And it translates, it means to lift up right? It, it's translated to mean I lift up, right? I lift up so I can take away or I lift up so I can take off, right? But it's the idea of lifting something up. It's, it's a root word in the Greek, meaning you don't have to go through a bunch of other words to figure out the meaning. It is of itself a root word and it means to lift up. So instead of saying cuts off, let's read it and use the word lifts up. I'm the vine, right? Let's go back to verse 1, right? He says in verse 1, I'm the vine. Go back to verse 1 there, David. John 15, i I'm the vine. My father is the gardener. Verse 2. He, say it again. He lifts up because the vines are on the ground. He lifts up every branch in me that what? Now tell me the picture you have of the vine dresser. What's he trying to do with the vine? He's trying to help it what? Grow and produce food because maybe it's gotten moldy, maybe down there it's been trampled, maybe down there it's suffered in some way that can't do it. So what's the gardener do? He lifts listen, you can read Jewish you can read about this when you study Jewish culture. The the gardener would lift up the vine and lay it on a rock, right? Or they would build some kind of makeshift trellis to allow the vine To somehow get the flow back into it. Doesn't that make more sense to you that if you're a branch and you are in Jesus, if you're in a season where you're not producing fruit, does it not make more sense that God would do what he can as a gardener to help you produce fruit? Doesn't that make more sense to you? And yet we read it and we go, well, he's just about, he's, he's about to cut us off. It's no wonder people don't want to go to church because how long, what, how long of a season can you have where you're not producing fruit and still feel comfortable coming to church? Right? I've been in ministry, paid vocational ministry for 40 years. And I can tell you this, that it does not take very long for a person who's a Christian, who's having a really bad season, not doing right, Right? Not acting as a child of God. Not, not aligning their life with God's directives. I can tell you, it doesn't take very long for that person to leave church if they believe that God's adversary relationship is watching them every day. And is that really how God is? Because if He is, then why are you here? I don't know all of your stories, but my guess is your story ain't a lot different than mine. My guess is that many of you who've walked with the Lord for a little bit of a time have had seasons where you were just a non productive branch. Yes or no? Well, what's convinced you that God hasn't cut you off? You see, if we interpret that He cuts off every branch that bears no fruit, you have to ask a lot of questions. What kind of fruit? How long can I go? Right? Who gets to decide? Does he wait until I'm dead to tell me that or does he do it while I'm still living and then I'm pretending to be a Christian when all the while God's going to surprise me at the end and go, hey, I cut you off. You see how complicated that is? And here's the thing about that philosophy. The only reason that philosophy or that theology was ever accepted was that man could be in charge of your life. Been to those churches? Where men decided what you could and couldn't do. Where men decided this is how you should live, how you should dress, how you should look. And here's the thing, if you don't, you're not a Christian. Anybody know of those kinds of churches? Yeah. You see, when you set up that kind of theology, you tell tell people who show up at your church, we're in charge of monitoring your behavior. Because God will cut you off if you don't produce fruit. I think it's a terrible misrepresentation of Jesus. I think it's a terrible misrepresentation, most of all, of the gardener. The gardener loves you. The gardener loves his child. The gardener's desire, according to verse 8, is to produce much fruit. So why would he cut it off when he has a better chance of getting fruit just by being tender and taking the time to help facilitate it? You see... Jesus, or the writer of Hebrews says in 1 Corinthians, or or in Hebrews chapter 4, excuse me. In Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews tells discouraged people, right? He tells them, we have a high priest that sympathizes with our weaknesses. Anybody grateful for that? Are anybody grateful that Jesus sympathizes with your struggles? Yes or no, right? So here's what he says. He's so sympathetic to your struggle because he's lived it. Right? He's walked it. Hebrews chapter four says that we, listen, you and I, as God's children, as the branches connected to the vine, he says this, when you're in trouble and you need mercy, not judgment, when you need grace, he says, go to the throne of God and boldly approach it with confidence. Do you know when you need mercy? When you're in a courtroom and you've done something wrong and you throw yourself at the mercy of the court, you're admitting, I've done wrong, but my only hope is that you will grant me mercy. Do you know what happens to most Christians when they do wrong? They run away from the what? The Father. Why? Because we have convinced you through our terrible teaching that God is not okay with you when you mess up. And every, almost every one of you, not all not everybody, I get it. But most parents want their child to feel comfortable and safe coming to them when they're messed up, right? We don't want our, listen, how many of you as parents want your kids hiding things from you? Anybody? No. When our children mess up, we want them to what? Feel safe, feel loved, and come and own it. And yet how many of your children did that? Not very many. Why? Because they didn't trust you. They were afraid. Right, Because the picture is, that's exactly how God works. Now listen, don't give me this nonsense about God's wrath. God's going to pour out his wrath. We already know that from scripture. But why would God pour out his wrath on his children? Because they're having a bad month, a bad week, a bad year. They're not producing the, the fruit that you want. You actually think that God is so impatient with you when the Bible tells us that God's love is never ending. Do you think God becomes so impatient with you in a season of non-fruit production that he's just going to cut you off? I don't. And you know why I know it? Because it didn't happen to me. And I'm not special. There's nothing special about my 7 year hiatus from honoring God. And I know God didn't cut me off. And my my truth from this passage is that the gardener isn't cutting off the vine or the branch, he's lifting it up. He's facilitating what? He's facilitating production. Right? He wants that in this person. God wants you to represent him well. God wants you to produce fruit that glorifies and magnifies him. Do you think he's done with you? Because you took on Jesus at 16, and then when you went to college, you went crazy and did stupid stuff and didn't go to church and drank and slept around and did all kinds of stupid things. And then six, seven years later, you got married and had kids and went, wow, we need to go back to church. And it's like now, well, I can't go to church because maybe I'm cut off. I don't think that's exactly what the scripture teaches. I think the scripture teaches that God has in his heart to facilitate production. Let's read a couple of verses. Uh, David, I'm going to, or Jess, I'm going to ask you to skip all the way down to John chapter 6 and verse 37. John chapter 6, verse 37. We're talking about facilitating production. I do not believe from the Greek, Iroh. I do not believe for a second that Jesus is saying to these disciples, right? Remember, there were human beings in front of him, right? Right there in front of him. And he said to them, I'm the vine, you're the branch. Did he say to them, any branch in me that does not bear fruit, I'll cut off? Because if that's the case, why didn't he cut Peter off? Why didn't he cut Peter off when Peter eventually denies him three times, cusses out a little girl in a fire to prove that he was a liar? Why didn't he cut him off? I don't know. Maybe because it's just not true. And here's where this boils down to. Listen to John chapter 6, right? He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will what? Come on, read it with me. I will what? I will What? Drive away. We have made God so adversarial to each of us as children. We believe that God is so impatient that if you're messing up, if you're doing what you shouldn't be doing and it lasts for more than six minutes, God's going to drive you away. And you can't get, you can't have your relationship with God, your father, back until you get this right. Do you know how unbiblical that is? He says... I will never drive them away. Then in verse 38, it says this. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of what? Of him who sent me. So do the will of who? God, the father. Whose father? Our father. And what is the will of the father? He says this. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me. None. But raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will, he goes on to say, is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him has what? Eternal life. And listen to this. And I will raise him up on the last day. Why is it that we've made God so adversarial? Listen, I've been, like I said, I've been a believer for a long time. And I've been a paid vocational pastor for a long time. This is the most irritating question to me that I get as a pastor. And the question always has to do with, do you think this person is saved? And then they give me their resume, right? Do you realize that that's not the purview of man? We are not to make those calls. God makes those calls. Our job is to get people to Jesus, right? Our job is to disciple people to where they'll follow Jesus, be baptized in Jesus, and be taught about Jesus. Right? People who are, Hebrews 12 says, right, we should lay aside the sin that easily entangles us, right? And ensnares us. But he also says to those of us around those who are caught in that snare that we should what? We should help them. We shouldn't get down there and press the bear trap harder and cut their leg off and say, this is what you get. We should be there to support those people. Why? Because God is for us. And he says, of all those that God's given me, I will never ever, ever lose you. Do you know how much fuller churches would be across this entire nation if people who've accepted Jesus knew that about their God? The reason that lots of people leave church isn't because they know the God of Scripture. They know the God of a teaching of man. And that God is unattractive. I had a father like that. I had a father that gave his love based upon your performance. I was raised in 18 years of that. And it created in me an unbelievable frustration. To the point that the only thing I learned to do growing up was anything I could to please my dad. Because if I couldn't please my dad, he wasn't going to love me. And that's what we do with people in church. We make God's conditional upon our performance. No, God says, our love, our love is that way, not his Right? How about this passage in John 10? He says, my sheep, right, listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me, right? So how many of you online in here know Jesus? How many of you have heard Jesus' voice through scripture and follow him? And yet how many of you that love Jesus, know Jesus, and have heard him and follow him still have seasons where you produce no fruit? Listen to what Jesus says. I will give them what? Eternal life. What kind of life? Eternal means it lasts what? Hell, whatever, right? We think it lasts based upon the season of your production. He says, I'm going to give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. He says, my father who's given them to me is greater than who? All. And no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. And then he says, I and the father are one. So I think we've gotten it all wrong. When Jesus says, I'm the vine and God's the gardener and the branch in me that bears no fruit, he's not cutting it off. He's lifting it up. Why? Because he loves us. He's promised us in Jesus eternal life. He's promised us that God will lose none of us. And yet we have run, we, listen, we've run so many people off in the church. We're now, we've now lost a generation of, of, of adults because they don't want to be in that house. They don't want to be with that father. Listen, I, lo- I lived in my home with my father because I was born there. But I guarantee you that most people would have never chosen of their own volition to live in that house. Because it was, a, it was an insane way to try to live to get your father to approve you. Because your performance had everything to do with it. When in reality, my position with my father should have been insecured because of his relationship to me. He's my father. He should have loved me. But he didn't. He wanted my performance to earn it. And that's what we've told people in church. Listen, I don't know if you know this or not, but your performance can't earn it. Amen? You can't do it. So what do you have to rely on? You've got to rely on the father. You've got to rely on his relationship with you. Because if you are sitting there in here listening and you're watching on Lives listening and you think you've earned this because you somehow are so godly and you've done the right things, you're crazy. You're crazy. You haven't. No matter how godly you are, no matter how godly you are compared to other people, you have not earned eternal life. You just haven't done it. And why is it that we want to make people feel so scared of a God who loved them enough to give their son? I don't understand that. The Bible says in First John chapter 4, complete love cast out all fear. And yet we want believers to be scared to death of God. Why? It's not how he feels about us. Matthew chapter 5 or Matthew chapter 7 says this. Watch out for false prophets. He said, they're going to come to you in sheep's clothing. Now, you know who these people are. What kind of prophets are they? False prophets. He's not talking about believers. He's not talking about disciples. He's not talking about people who are in the vine. He says, false prophets. He says, they are inwardly ferocious what? Wolves. He says, by their what? You will recognize them. Who's the them? False prophets. Not those who are in Jesus, but false prophets. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Answer, no, right? Likewise, every good tree bears what kind of fruit? Good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Does that make sense to you? Right? That makes sense, right? Listen to this. This is where, this is where our theology has to be better. Listen to what he says. A good tree. Cannot what? Okay. Based upon the way we read the Bible and the way we teach it. If you're a Christian, you should never produce bad fruit. Now, let me ask you a question. And I want to show of hands. On line two. How many of you as a Christian have ever produced bad fruit? Come on, get your hands up. Let me read it to you again. A good tree, what? Bear, cannot, not will not, right? Not should not, but cannot. Which means if you produced bad fruit, are you a good tree? No. Then why are you here? Why are you watching online if you believe that? The reality is we don't want to believe that. We don't want that to be true. But somehow we do believe that. He says a good tree can't bear bad fruit and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. He says this, every tree that does not bear good fruit, right? So again, if you're a tree that's connected to Jesus, you cannot bear bad fruit. He says a tree that doesn't bear good fruit is what? And thrown into the fire. Oh, there you go. If you're a Christian and you are not producing good fruit, you're going to hell. That's not true. That's not biblical in any way, shape, or form. He's talking about false prophets. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. How many of you in here on online know Jesus? Say amen. And how many of you in your relationship with Jesus have ever produced good fruit? How many of you? Come on, be honest. Don't be this isn't you being arrogant, but if you've ever produced good fruit, if you've ever been had love from the spirit, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Anybody here ever produce good fruit? Yes or no? Of course you have. Of course you have. Here's what he says. If you know Jesus, you can produce good fruit. If you don't know Jesus, you can't produce good fruit. Why? Because our fruit comes from the presence of the Holy Spirit, not because we do it. And guess who doesn't have the Holy Spirit? False prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing, Nothing they do ever reflects God. But the things you've done at times reflect God. Amen, church? And at times the things that you've done have reflected your flesh. Amen? Here's the question. How much of that is God going to tolerate before he cuts you off? If you actually believe that God's desire in facilitating production of fruit is to get rid of all of these lazy Christians that aren't doing anything right, then who are you left with? Nobody nobody because we've somehow made God this guy walking around with these with with this knife going that off, off, off right, every kid that goes to college that knows Jesus growing up and goes to Sunday school Sunday school class and then goes to college and loses his mind, boom, off and then that kid gets married and then they talk about going to church, he's like I don't want to raise my kids in church I don't, that, that's nonsense. And then they raise a generation of kids that are now having kids, and those kids aren't ever going to come to church. The problem is, when you read the statistics, people are searching for meaning of life and hope, right, in, than in any other time. Why? Because we've removed this God from be, being believable. And I think it's time we stop that, right? Because it's not true. Does God want fruit from his children, yes or no? yes. Here's the question Do you believe he's going to cut you off if you don't get it? Or do you think that God will actually do whatever it takes to help you produce it because he's your father, right? And that you're a Jesus and God, God won't let anybody snatch those things from his hand. That's what I believe the scripture's talking about, all right? So I have run out of time. Shelby's in the back, patiently smiling and waving, right? And, uh, so we don't have, we don't have service next Wednesday, but when we come back, I'm going to finish John 15 because it gets better than that. I don't know about you, but I am tired of believing in a God that wants his children to be scared of him. Yes or no? The reality is what God is toward us is not fathomable to me and you because we cut people off. God isn't going to do that. God isn't going to cut you off. Because if you know Jesus, the Bible says you have eternal life. And the Holy Spirit that lives in you, he ain't ever going to leave you. Matter of fact, he guarantees our redemption. Which means the most important relationship you have to have in the world is with who? Come on, say Jesus. That's the most important relationship. And that's what John, that's what Jesus gets to here. Right? Because at the end of the day, he's going to equate your relationship with Jesus with this fruit producing and this cutting off. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for um, comforting words. I know you're a fearsome, you're a fearsome God that has more sovereignty than I can even begin to fathom. I cannot fathom a God who is so powerful. That he would wipe out an entire world of people except eight because of your attitude towards sin based upon your nature. It is incomprehensible to me. But God, I am grateful that you, even though you're incomprehensible, you've been made understandable because of Jesus. And the words that Jesus speaks to us in this book, they're words that come from you. The work that Jesus did, it came from you. It's according to your will. So God, I just pray that you'd help us interpret it better. You'd help us to understand it better. So instead of driving people away from a God that's got a pitchfork and a fire and ready to cut us off at any sign of lack of production, that we'll understand you are forbearing with your children. You love your children. And your desire is to get every one of us home safe. So God, increase our trust in you. Increase our peace with you. Remove fear from the equation, God. And help us to learn to walk in that trust and in that faith. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, church.